Well, good morning. If you don't know me, my name is Colton White. Um, I'm the associate pastor here at Renewal, and I'm excited to continue our series in John. So we're going to be in John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. So if you want to open up your copy of Scripture, and um, we will go all the way to verse 18. So let me read that for us. It says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that's the man, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. So they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was, as there was a crowd in the place. And afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Okay, so I want to start off with a question. When was the last time you were shocked, like legitimately shocked, utterly, absolutely, insanely, hands to the mouth, oh my goodness, shocked? Well, recently, um, I've started playing chess, and you're like, what does that have to do with anything? Um, Well, I started playing chess, chess, and before you ask, no, it's not solely because of the Queen's Gambit, it's because my brother-in-law watched the Queen's Gambit. And he roped me into playing with him, and I just got absolutely hooked. No, I do not look like a chess player, and I'm not very good. Um, the other night, the worship team was practicing at our house. Um, Katie in the blue skirt is my wife, and so the whole team was over at our house. And after practice, um, Tristan, I, well, I challenged him to a match because I thought I could beat him. And, and we, we've been talking about playing chess for a while, and so after practice, we, set, we had the board set up, and we started playing. If you don't know him, he's the guy over here on the electric guitar on the right. Um, and man, was I dominating. Like, I was dominating. I mean, I started out with a London opening. I got a fork with his rook and his bishop, and then it was check after check after check, and he was just done. So I thought. But I failed to notice that he, was, he had lined his bishop up with his queen on the same diagonal. And so I had castled. I'm talking a lot of lingo. I just, 
watched a lot of YouTube videos. And so, and, and I had castled, and, but he had it lined directly up. And we were playing speed chess too, because he had to get home to his family because it was so late. And then I just failed to notice that he had this planned. And I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked. Now, you all have little moments, like fun things like that, where you're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I did that, right? Sports moments or things at home, or you stub your toe, I don't know, whatever. But there's also the moments in life where you just will never forget it, right? Like, I I remember the day Katie walked down the aisle. I'll never forget it. I was shocked. And I also remember the day I found out my dad had passed away. I was shocked. We all have these moments in life where we're shocked. But let me ask you a different question in the same theme. When was the last time you were shocked by God's mercy? legitimately and utterly shocked. You couldn't believe it. You could not believe that he would love you in such a way. When you truly understand the depth of your sin and the destruction that it brings and the audacity of what it means that you and I are a sinner and the reality that that separates us from him. But God in his mercy reached down and he loved us that a holy and loving God would set his affection on you and call you a son or a daughter. It's shocking mercy. It really is. When is the last time that you were really shocked by God? Are you bored? (laughs) Have you been living in a season of apathy where you just don't really care? My prayer today is that in this text you see just the shocking mercy of God. And one of the things that I hope you are learning together, that you're learning as we travel through John together, is that you may not know Jesus as well as you think you know him. I don't know if you've noticed that. I've noticed that. That you may not know Jesus as well as you think you know him. Some of us in this room are very familiar with Jesus. We've read books about him. We've read his book. We've sang about him. We've studied him. But if you really pay attention to the things that he says in the Gospels, in the scriptures, then he will, shocking. It was shocking then when he said it, and it's shocking now. Now, just by observing this text, we see three main themes that create its setting and drives the conversation. So if you're an outline person, this is my outline. A pool, a man, and the Sabbath. That's your outline, right? That's what we see in this text, right? Observation, interpretation, application. So if you observe it, you see a pool, you see a man, and you see a conversation about Sabbath. So I want to start with the pool in verse 2. It says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Now, a colonnade is what you and I would just call a porch. Okay, It just means a roof without walls that is supported by columns. And verse 3 tells us that there was a multitude of invalids at this pool. Specifically, the Bible says they were lame, they were blind, and they were paralyzed there. Now, this pool had a superstition to it, okay? It was believed that this pool was attached to some kind of power that would heal you if you got into the pool. Now, in reality, it was probably attached to a hot spring or some kind of spring that made the water move around. But the people believed that if you were in the pool when the water was bubbly, that you would be healed. Now, look at verse 4. Wait, 
My Bible doesn't have a verse four. Does your Bible have a verse four? Does anybody in here have a King James Bible? You have a verse four, but no one else does. And the question you're asking is, why? <laughs> why do we not have a verse four? So I'm going to come back to the pool, but this is a little side trip because I think this is important. I want to address this. Why does the Bible leave out John 5, 4? And does that compromise your Bible in any way? Because I don't want there to be any stumbling block for you when you consider the authority of the Bible. The short explanation is that the earliest manuscripts of the Bible did not have verse 4 included in them. But it is believed that verse 4 was added later to give commentary on the pool. Now, the longer explanation is much more fascinating, okay? And it will give you some context to how we got the Bible that you have in front of you today. The first thing we must understand is that the chapters and verses in your Bible are not inspired by God. They're not. The words are inspired by God, but the chapters and verses are not. And centuries ago, when the King James Bible was written, we had a limited number of manuscripts. So the King James Bible was written in 1611, okay? That's a long time ago. And since then, we have been able to gather a number of more manuscripts and older manuscripts to those that we have already had. And we began to compare them, right, to see what matched. And it's important to note, this is common sense, though, that after John wrote this book, it was copied over and over and over again. That's how you got the Bible that you have today. John wrote it, and people began to copy it, and it began to spread across the world. And if you are copying something over and over, what's guaranteed to happen? You're going to mess up, right? It's like the telephone game. A word might be misspelled, or you might leave something out. Maybe somebody fell asleep on verse 3 and woke up and continued with verse 5. I don't know. But think about this. The more manuscripts you have, it makes it easier to track down the genealogical descent of where someone messed up, right? So you can begin to track down, okay, this is where it began to change. And if you just knew, man, the providence of God and putting together our scriptures, the history of how this book was put together, it is fascinating. I would love to preach a whole sermon on this. Maybe Matthew can because you know, I, it's, it's a lot of study, but it's so rich, right? He can spend all that time in that study, and I will cheer him on. One of my seminary professors, seminary professors put it this way. We have, with our New Testament scholarship, manuscripts, resources, we have an embarrassment of riches, an embarrassment of riches. So a natural question you might ask is, well, how many manuscripts do we have? Well, let me ask you. How many Greek manuscripts do you think we have? We have around 5,800 Greek manuscripts, and we're still finding some today. That was as of 2007, so 14 years ago. And early on, the New Testament was translated into Latin as early as the second century. Now, how many Latin manuscripts do you think we have? Over 10,000. And if we didn't have Greek or Latin, we would still have 10 to 15,000 manuscripts in other languages. Now, I know this is a long trail, but it's, it's going to be good. Um, if we compare that to other ancient literature, we base everything we know about ancient Greece and Rome on five guys, okay? Three from Rome named Livy, Tatticus, and Suetonius, and then two from Greece. I can't even say their names. 
Thucydides and Herodotus, okay? They are known as the fathers of historiography. Now, when we look at these guys, who we base everything we know, so the movie Gladiator, everything we know in ancient Rome and Greece, how many copies of their manuscripts do we have? Of Livy, there are 27. Tatticus, three. And if you were to add all their manuscripts together, how many would we have? Less than 400, about four feet high, if you were to stack them all up. New Testament, 6,000 Greek, 10,000 in Latin, and five and 10,000 other languages. And the earliest one that we have, the fragment of the New Testament, was one to two decades after it was written. If you stacked them all up, it would be over a mile high. We have an embarrassment of riches, and that's not an accident. God has taken care to ensure that we have his word. And so, is it okay that verse 4 is not in your Bible? Yeah, because God has made sure that the copy that you have in your hand right now is accurate, right? And so the fact that there is no verse 4 shouldn't give us less confidence in our Bible. It should give us four, that God, more, that God is providing the means to make sure that we have in this book the truth. Now, you do have verse 4 in your footnotes, okay? You do have verse 4 in your footnotes. That is, if you don't have a King James Bible. And here's what it says. And it's actually helpful information about the pool. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Now, this is important. It's not an inspired explanation, but it is an explanation of what's happening here. Okay? And it's also believed that this verse is not saying that an angel actually went down to the pool, but rather this is what the people believed was happening with the water, okay? that the troubling of the water would happen, and the first one into the pool would be healed. So that's why when the man says he can't get healed, it's because when the water is stirred up, someone always goes before him because it's the first one in. So that's the pool. Next, we see the man. In verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And this is a shocking question. First, notice there are no introductions here. Jesus does not say, hi, my name is Jesus. How are you today? There's none of that. He doesn't have time for pleasantries. And second, he asks kind of a ridiculous question, if you think about it. <laughs> He asked a ridiculous question. This man is literally, literally at a healing pool, a place called the House of Mercy. He's obviously paralyzed, and Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? Of course he does. Why do you think he's there? What kind of question is that? And then verse 7, it says, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the water when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Have you noticed that in the book of John, you have Jesus say something, and it's like on a completely different playing field than what they think they're talking about, right? They have no idea. Like it's, it's like he's talking in a completely different universe. He tells Nicodemus, you must be born again, and Nicodemus is like, what? I only have one mom, right? He tells the woman at the well, I'm going to give you living water, and she's like, what? You don't even have a bucket, right? And then he tells his disciples, I have food that you know nothing about. And they're like, who gave him something to eat? They're not on the same playing field. And here, he says, do you want to be healed? 
And this man says, yeah, I want to get into the pool. I want to get into the pool. Think about it. Man, this man is standing in front of the God of the universe, the author of salvation, the only one that can give him salvation, the only one that can give him true healing, the only one who can give him the very thing that he wants. And he says, will you put me into the pool? That he thinks salvation comes from the pool. And be in this moment, if I could just get into the pool, everything would be okay. And I wonder how many of us are still trying to find healing and satisfaction in the pool when the God of the universe is right in front of us. If I could just get that promotion, if my wife would just do this, if my husband would just do this, if my kids would just do this, God, if you would just take this away, if you would just change this circumstance, if I didn't have to deal with this, then everything would be fine. And we completely miss that the only one who can give us all that we really need is right in front of us. And in this moment, Jesus wants to know what this man really wants, right? He wants to know what he really wants, and he wants to know what you and I really want. Jesus is always driving at two things, two things. He's asking two questions. One, do you see your need, and do you trust in my provision? Do you see your need, and do you trust in my provision? In this moment, this man can painfully see his need. He's been paralyzed for 38 years. Years, he's aware of the hopelessness that is this situation. Do you see your need? Do you want to be healed? What we tend to forget is that Jesus can do more for you than you even know to ask. Jesus can do more for you than you even know to ask. And then we see in verse 8, it says, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk, and at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. See, this guy probably expected that Jesus would help him get into the water, right? Do you want to be helped? Well, let me help you get into the water. And I wonder if this man thought for a second, wait, you're not going to help me get into the pool? Think about this, 38 years. That's longer than I have been alive. And I hope that doesn't make you feel too old. But that is longer than I have been alive. He has known his pain and his limitations for his body for 38 years. And Jesus has the audacity to say to him, get up. The audacity to say, as if this man had never thought of that before. Do you think it wasn't in his dreams to just wake up one morning and get up? And notice what's not here. Jesus doesn't say a spell. He doesn't do a ritual. He doesn't speak in elvish. He doesn't call on some other power. He is the power. Jesus' word is enough for this man. And in a moment, he goes from being on a mat to carrying his mat. You know, the Bible is, it's full of so much rich doctrine and mystery and beauty. Scholars and pastors and Christians have debated the words of God for hundreds of years. And man, when you dig deep, it is so rich and it's so good and life-giving. But in our digging, we can forget why we were digging in the first place. That the Bible at its core communicates a very simple truth. What is sanctification? Paul says, 
Put off, put on. Put off sin, put on holiness. How can I be saved? It's not, well, I'm an Arminian, so I believe, or I'm a Calvinist, so I believe. No, what, what does it say? Repent and believe. What will happen on the day of resurrection? Well, I'm an amillennial, so I believe, or I'm a premillennial, so I, what does it say? And you'll study this text, the next text in your home groups this week. Like, just like Jesus said to this man, he will say to the dead in his name, get up. And just at that simple command, all the dead will rise. The power of his words. Let's not overcomplicate the purposes of God. He came to restore and renew. He came to this pool to restore this man, and he has come to restore us. And it's not just physical. It's much more than that. It's not just the external things in our lives. Jesus is after this man's heart. He's after his heart. And he's after your heart. He wants to restore your soul, your mind. In verse 4, this is, we see this beautiful, oh my goodness, shocking. Verse 4, afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now we have to pause here. Because that sounds kind of harsh, right? <laughs> like Jesus heals him and he doesn't throw him a party or celebrate him. He says, okay, you're good. Stop sinning. That just sounds kind of harsh. Well, I want to clear this up because it's good to get some context here because this is something that can be confusing when you read the Gospels. Um, it was a popular belief that if you had something physically wrong with you, that it was because of your sin. It was a popular belief. In fact, we see it later in John 9, we'll study this text in a few weeks. Um, John 9, verse 1, it says, As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth, and his disciples, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered him, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Or if you remember Job, right? His friends come to him and say, Dude, will you just repent? Obviously, all these bad things are happening to you because you are a bad person. You have offended God. But that wasn't the case with Job. And it's often not the case that if bad things just happen to bad people, then how do you explain what happened to Jesus on the cross? You can't. So there is not always a correlation between bad circumstances and your sin being a cause of that. However, and you know this, Sometimes there are. Sometimes there is a connection between your suffering and your sin. It's not, most of the time it's not the case, but sometimes that is the case. And Jesus' words in verse 14 seem to suggest that in this case, there was a relationship between this man's sin and his suffering. And we can only speculate with this guy. We don't know what his sin was. Maybe he was in some kind of drunken brawl early in his life that led to his paralysis. We don't know. But regardless, he engaged in sin, and that led to his current circumstances. And I imagine that after Jesus healed him, this man thought it was all good. I mean, he goes and tattles on Jesus to the religious leaders. He probably thought he was good, free to live his life however he wants. And this is kind of how we operate with God sometimes. The moment we get what we think we want, we move on. We reject him. We do our own thing. God, if you would just fix my problem, I'll do this. But we never do the this. We move on. We want the miracle, but we don't want the miracle maker. 
And here's what Jesus is saying in verse 14. I fixed your problem, but you have an even bigger problem. Don't miss this. The miracle is never an end in itself. They never are. The miracle is meant to lead to this man's holiness. That this man thought that it was his legs that didn't work. But the more important reality is that it was his heart that was not working. And what Jesus does with this man is a direct reflection of what God does with us. Think about it. Some of you might be tempted to say, well, this is a cool story, but I've never seen a miracle. I'm probably never going to see a miracle. I've never seen a blind man healed or the dead (laughs) brought to life from the dead. I've never seen that. I probably never will. Well, I would say to you, first, look around. (laughs) Look around. You are surrounded by people who were once blinded by this world, and God has opened their eyes. That's a miracle. You are surrounded by people who once walked in their sin and shame, and God has pulled them out of that into his kingdom of hope and love. That's a miracle. You are surrounded by people who were once dead, and now they're alive. That's a miracle. Understand that when Jesus saves you, it's not just an end in itself. It's a miracle that leads to an explosion of hope. It leads to holiness. That Jesus would say to us, go and sin no more because there are worse things than eyes that can't see. There are. There are worse things than eyes that can't see. There are worse things than ears that can't hear than legs that can't walk. It's one thing to have your body healed, but it's a whole other ball game to have your soul restored, to have a new heart. And a good way to examine where you're at on this is, it's a question. And I really struggled with this question this week. Um, if Jesus could, in a moment, remove your suffering, so maybe that's an actual physical ailment. Maybe it's your ears, your eyes, your back. Maybe it's migraines. Maybe it's circumstances. Um, something with your kids or in your marriage. Um, or the loss of someone in your life, that God would bring them back. So Jesus could, in a moment, remove that suffering from you, but left you in your sin. Would you take that deal? Would you be okay with that? Would that be enough for you? Now, we know the right answer is no, duh. But would you be tempted to take that deal? I would. I struggled with it this week. If I could have my dad back, if I could have my mom back, I'd be tempted to take that deal. But to be left in my sin? No way. No way. Jesus is better than that. Jesus is better than any miracle he could give me. He is better than all of it. He is better than anything. Jesus in himself, who he is, his grace and love for you is better than any physical thing he could do for you. Salvation is always better than a change change of circumstances. So the real question is, do you want a change in your circumstances or do you want a change in your heart? Now, I do want to say this. um, Can God remove that cancer from you? 
Yeah, you bet he can. Can he make a paralyzed person walk again? You bet. Can he make the deaf hear? Yes. And should we pray for those things? Absolutely, we should be praying for those things. You bet that we should. But the reality is that most people who suffer from disabilities in this life will have them until the day that they die. And all of us, until Jesus comes again, will die of something. So yeah, short answer, we believe in miracles and we should be praying for them. But I want you to think about this. Even though Jesus had all the power to heal everyone when he was with us, he didn't. But rather when he did, it pointed to a day, right? When he healed, that moment pointed to a day, a day when everyone would be healed. But the main issue as you see it in this story and other stories, that in this age till Jesus comes back is that we meet him, that we meet him in our brokenness and we receive the power of his forgiveness to pursue holiness. But it's interesting too, and this calling of faith and holiness, if you notice, and you probably know people like this, the disabled, they often run faster and further for the things of God than I do. And for the mentally disabled, my suspicion is that they are running faster and further than we think they are. That God knows them and he loves them. You know, there was a, when I was saved, I was 16 and I entered into the youth group and um, I would go and make fun of the songs they sang all the time, like open the eyes of my heart, this is the air, this is the air I breathe. And, and I was like, what are they saying? I don't know. And... Um, and so, but there was this girl in there. Her name was Alicia, and she had Down syndrome. And I remember, as a young believer, just watching her worship. And I think I learned more about worship from watching her than I have any other pastor. So my suspicion is that for the mentally disabled, they are running faster and further than we think they are, and that God knows them, and he loves them. But what we see here is a concern for the heart, that we must be careful that we don't put our salvation and hope in the healings of this life. What's eternally more important, your heart or your body or your circumstances? Because that's the healing that Jesus cares about. He wants to know what you really want, a change in your circumstances or a change in you. Because the reality is many of us want a life coach more than we want a Lord. We want a life coach to give us advice on how to make our circumstances better rather than a Lord who rules over our lives with all authority. I find it interesting um, that at the end of verse 14, Jesus says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. That nothing worse may happen to you. What does he mean by that? I, I struggle with this too because, I mean, what could be worse than being paralyzed for 38 years? Think about what he's saying here. What could be worse than being paralyzed for 38 years? How could things possibly be worse than that? Sitting by a body of water, just hoping to get in there first so that just maybe the bubbling of the water would heal you. What could be worse than that? I think what he's talking about here is eternal separation from God. I think the worst here is that Jesus is talking about is the reality that if you continue to, hey, Guy that I just healed, if you continue to live the life that you do, you will be separated from me, and that will be much worse for you. 
It will be worse than anything you know. So that's the man. The third central piece of this text is the controversy surrounding the Sabbath. Okay? So the religious leaders in this text are ticked. Why? Well, they aren't mad that Jesus healed the man. They're mad because Jesus did it on the Sabbath, and they're mad that this guy is just carrying his mat. (laughs) It's crazy. Verse 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, to be clear here, Jesus didn't break any scriptural law. No, he held God's law perfectly, but he did break with their traditions, okay? The religious leaders would take God's law in an effort to be even extra holy. They would add on more laws to God's law, okay? And in their traditional law on the Sabbath, they had 39 classes of prohibited work on the Sabbath. And one of them, which is what we see here, one of them was you could not carry an object from one place to another. For example, a mat. So, You couldn't do that on the Sabbath. So what are these religious leaders mad about? They are mad that he is carrying his mat. So think about this. You could be carried on a mat, but you could not carry a mat. So if you are carrying a person, then the carrying of the mat mat is just incidental. But if there is no person, then you are just carrying a mat, and that is breaking the Sabbath. It's crazy. We never do stuff like this, right? We never add on expectations to God's word. We never add on things to be even more holy than God has called us to be holy. And then we get more exhausted and meaner and more frustrated because we can't keep the traditions that we're expecting, that God is even expecting us to keep. So don't judge too quickly here. We do it too. And then when what Jesus says to them, What Jesus says to them, it's more than shocking. I was trying to think of a word for it this week. I think what he says to them is scandalous. Like what he says to them in verse 17 is just downright offensive. He says, this is how Jesus answered them. My father is working until now and I am working. What in the world does Jesus mean by that? Here's what I think he's telling him. He's saying, The Father and I have created the world. It was beautiful. It was paradise. It was perfect. And on the seventh day, we rested. Not because we got tired. We don't get tired, but we stepped back to enjoy the manifestation of our glory and the paradise of a universe that we made perfect. It was radiant with our glory, and we enjoyed it. That's what the essence of what Sabbath is, to enjoy the glory of God, that we would be energized by it. We would be restored restored by it. We would be rested in God, that he's saying we made it, it was beautiful, and we rested. And then what happened? Sin. Sin entered into the world. And when sin entered into the world, sickness entered into the world, like at the pool of Bethesda. Think about it, man. All of, picture it, all of those people broken, clinging to the hope that this water can heal them. Hundreds of people trying to be the first ones into the water. When sin entered the world, really, it was broken, absolutely broken. Creation groaning, our bodies broken, relationships 
broken. So when Jesus says, my father is working until now and I am working, I think he's saying, when sin entered into the world, my father and I started working again. We started working again to restore what was broken. The Sabbath is about restoring the diminished. It's about replenishing the drained. It's about repairing the broken. And Jesus is saying, the world is broken and my father and I are working to restore it. That's what the picture of this man is. It's restoration and replenishing for his broken body and his broken heart. That he will restore all that's physical, but even more, he will restore your soul back to belong to him. That you and, I, you and him will be reconciled and be able to sit at the table together. He is restoring and renewing. But even now, man, you know, we still have circumstances that want to crush us and want to steal our joy, but you also know what you have now. So it's, it's more than just looking to the future. It's, it's, it's also the reality that we forget that you literally, right now, if you are in Christ, have the God of the universe living inside of you. I don't know if you do that. Called the Holy Spirit. God dwelling with you every day, reminding you, Sabbath, Sabbath, rest in me. Reminding us, this is not your home. This place is temporary. Trust in me. Hope in me. I will restore you. And so my hope for you this week is that when you get into a moment where you are frustrated, where you are angry, where you are wishing that you didn't have the circumstances that you did, that you take a moment and just read this text, that God would begin to stir your heart where you would say, you know what? He is better. That in every single sorrow that I have, in all my frustration, in all my anger, in all my apathy, in all my boredom, God, will you stir my affections to see that you are better? Because he is.